Chapter 32 is one to mark in your mind if you don't mark your Bible. It's a little bit like chapter 28 because if Jacob is well known for two episodes in his life, it would be these two. First of all, you have that dream. It's important, I think, to make that distinction, but in that experience that he has with God in chapter 28 at Bethel takes the form of a dream. Now we have Peniel, which I think is arguably even more famous because here's the incident in which he's wrestling with God. You know, when we first started out this class, um, and Becca Miniger was, Miniger was so kind that she had, you know, did up a little thing for the, the thing that's on the TV or whatever, and the thing that appears on, on YouTube for the class. And she asked me if I saw it, and did I like it, and she's always so kind that way. And, I, and you know, we had worked on one ourselves at home, not for the church, but just for my, my personal website. And, I kept thinking about, maybe this is a dated comment or something, it doesn't seem like you can find this kind of stuff out there anymore. I don't know whether the people who produce things like this do this kind of stuff anymore, maybe only the people that do VBS literature or something. But I had these, these visions, it's not gonna be troublesome at all to find a nice illustration of Jacob's ladder or else Jacob wrestling with God. Seems to me like I can, see pictures of that from bygone days where you would encounter illustrations like that maybe in VBS or Sunday school material. Doesn't seem like out there in the mainstream of people who do artwork for productions, they've connected into this, but I, that's why I wanna get us connected into it. These are the two most decisive events in the life of Jacob, and of the two, this is the most decisive one. So. This is a really good chapter. We don't have time to do everything that you could do with it. I hope I just whet your appetite a little bit. But we were talking about this experience with God at Bethel, and I made the point that was a dream. That took place in a dream. All right, there's, you're taking a, you're graduating here. It's like going from undergrad to grad school. Because instead of this taking place in a dream, not that that was less real, but folks, having an experience with God face to face, I just want you to think about that in the broader context of the Bible, especially when you think about a statement that's made in the first chapter of John's Gospel where the writer says, Jesus says, for there shall no man see my face and live. So whatever this is, we know that God takes appropriate measures to protect Jacob from a full-on exposure, just as he protected Moses from a full-on exposure. You remember when when Moses prayed that prayer to see, to see God's face, and God said, well, you can't do that exactly. There's a place over here, the cleft of the rock. I'll pass by. You'll, you'll be able to see my uh, parts from behind, but there shall no man see my face. We know all about this, but yet it's clearly described as a This is why Jacob makes the, co the comment when he names the place, I have seen the face of God in my life, has been delivered, I've been spared. So God took appropriate measures to, to, to be sure that that happened, and yet that doesn't take away from the fact that this is an elevated experience. You don't read much of this kind of thing happening in the Bible, and when it does, it's very significant. I think Jacob himself realizes that. I wanna say one more thing by way of, well, maybe two quickly, but I wanna be careful about this again. I wanna tell you something I told you before. When you look at statement number three here, if Bethel represents conversion, then Peniel speaks of consecration. Consecration or sanctification is what I want to talk about today. But I gotta say this again. 
we have to be very, very careful. We, we, are, we become so used to and conversant with our New Testament terminology. But folks, remember, we're, we're dealing with a situation where we're not only standing on 20 centuries of shoulders of church history, but we have had for years, hundreds of years, the church has had the entire Bible. So you have to be really careful. What we're comfortable with, with pinning down and using terminology to, to um, specify, it's valid, but you just have to be really careful about going back into the Old Testament where you didn't have quite the precision. And I'm not saying they didn't experience these things. I'm just saying sometimes trying to nail that down with quite the precision that you and I are used to being able to do that with, you just need to be careful. But I feel comfortable with this personally for as much as we can get. I mean, the record just doesn't come out and use this terminology. But so, you know, it, it, it's a certain amount of observation and sanctified guesswork. But it is helpful, I think, even if, as long as we're careful in the beginning to say we can't really be dogmatic about this. And different, different Bible students have had different ideas about some of this, but th these are probably the prevailing ones. I'm comfortable with it, but I'm just leery of being overly dogmatic. But I, I said that to you at the time we talked about Bethel. I think that's the closest you're going to come to an experience that we would liken to conversion. But my question to you is this, and, and this is what the lesson is all about today. Is God done at conversion? Kathy's shaking her head no. She's absolutely right. Any more than you're done as a parent with your child when he or she is born. <laughs> you have a a completely whole human being when a child is born. They will never be more in that sense, but growth, maturity, physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, every way, this person is going to grow throughout life. And so it isn't um, without a lot of significance that the Lord chose to use this in analogy when he talked to Nicodemus and said, you must be born again. Yes, conversion takes place one time. He didn't say ye must be born again and again. <laughs> but once you're born again, then that's a lifelong experience for as long as God leaves us on the earth. And a lot of times we refer to this as consecration or sanctification. Sanctification doesn't mean anything more than being set apart. And I'm going to talk more about this theologically next week. Um, I don't want to do too much and bog down with it today. I simply want to say what I think all of you know, that whereas there's a positional truth here, there's also a practical or a progressive truth. In other words, God may view the final product as having been complete in Christ, but in this life, it's progressive for us. We're growing in grace. Remember that verse? But grow in grace in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, 2 Peter 3.18. So this is what this is all about. God wants to get a hold of this man. And here's another point to make. A lot of times, and again, there's some theological issues I don't want to get off on a rabbit trail with. But for many of us, we accept Christ with the understanding we have at the time. We don't always understand totally what is involved in all of the claims that Christ is really asserting on our lives and to which we are surrendering at that point. But as we grow al go along, 
all of a sudden, he that hath begun a good work in you will what? Perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And so God is doing this work in us. He's, he's transforming us more and more into the image of Christ. And as we grow in grace and we see more and more of what this consecration thing looks like, God is constantly prompting us to yield and to grow and to be more like Christ. And as we face this, sometimes for, for a lot of us, we responded to that. When we, we really understood the implications of being a Christian, um, for a lot of us, we probably responded at a service somewhere where there was some type of a call to, to surrender your life to the Lord. And for others, maybe it hasn't worked out quite that way, but you get what I'm talking about. So that's what we're going to talk about today. One of the things we're going to notice, and we're going to notice it in spades, that's what this is kind of all about. He's not going to be perfect after Peniel. It's not like, it's not like he had this experience wrestling with the angel or wrestling with God, and all of a sudden he walks away and never makes another mistake again. You never see any more vestiges of the old Jacob. Far from it. That's why, it, this, that's why, to me, this is so encouraging and so practical, not to give us an excuse, but when you look at how Jacob came to this point of surrender and did, but yet then continued to struggle as he did with keeping the old Jacob at bay and allowing himself to live the life of Israel, which is how he's renamed here. There's some encouragement in this for us, I think, because it's a battle, folks. I'm telling you, if you're not fighting a battle every day, something's not right. So we'll skip over this verse and do more with it next week. Um, let's delve into the lesson for today. In the whole, we're gonna, so we're talking about consecration today. That's, that's kind of what I've chosen to talk about. I'm glad to tell you that in the process of consecration, God's on your side. I mean, don't you think God understands the struggle we have, and don't you think he wants to encourage us where we can? It's also true there's times when God has to kick us in the seat of the pants. The encouragement comes in the form of tough love. But this is a time right now when his servant really needs encouragement. Think about it. He's jumped out of one frying pan, which is Laban, and now he's jumping into another frying pan, which is Esau. So he's expecting to go from one showdown to the next, from Laban to Esau. And he's understandably worked up about this thing. And I, I, I'm going to tell you again something I said last week. I think today is another time when you have to put some points on the board for Jacob. Because I think he realizes this. He, he realizes that Esau's got to come next, and there's no way to avoid it. I mean, remember what the Jews did? They didn't want to have any dealings with the Samaritans. That's what the Samaritan woman said, right? She was surprised when she met up with Jesus at the well in Samaria because the Jews would typically detour around Samaria and they'd go through on the eastern side of the Jordan River, Perea, and cross back over into Judea. So if they were traveling from Galilee, they'd cross over before they got to Samaria the Jordan, and just come down on the opposite side of the river to avoid Samaria and then come back across. The Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Well, you don't find Jacob trying to find some way around this. And I think you have to give him credit for this. He recognizes that the very next thing he's got to do before he can, he can really move any, any more forward in life, he's got to resolve this issue. There, there has to be a reconciliation. 
And that's, you know what, that's a right spiritual step. When you realize that you've got a situation you need to resolve with a brother, here's a question, is it always easy to do that? No. In fact, a lot of times it's really hard. And so God knows we need encouragement. And he provides some here for Esau, but he's on the right track because Christ himself said, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. What's that really saying? It's saying there's a certain urgency to this. We're not, we're not reading every verse that's here, but he says it's important enough. When you're not right with your brother, when you recognize your brother is, is holding something on you now, he, he may be wrong. So th these are tricky, and I'm not trying to get off into a theology of this. I'm just saying that when you're not right with your brother, and in this particular case, there's not much question as to who's done wrong. Is there? I mean, Jacob is the one who twice showed himself to be the cheater, and, you know, so... Not much question, he knows he's offended his brother. He knows his brother, when he left, was angry. This is a step he really has to take. If he's going to live up to and experience God's blessing, so I think you put some points on the board for him at this point. Now, if you knew you had to do that, would you be scared? After all, he did threaten to kill him. That's what 2741 says. That's what Rebecca heard. That's why she went into action. He said, I'm gonna, I'll kill him. The days for the morning for my father are at hand. When that's over, I'll, I'll fix him. We don't have to worry about this blessing. It'll be mine anyway. So when we read in verse number 7, Jacob was greatly afraid. And we read again in verse number 11, Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, uh, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him. I mean, I, who wouldn't be? I have no criticism of that, whatever. And so God, God is blessing his determination to do right. How? By sending the angels. Now, I didn't do much with this in the lesson, but here's a progression for you. You have, I think I said this once before, you have more of these experiences with God in the life of Jacob than any of the other patriarchs. And that's something to take note of. So you go from Bethel, which was the house of God, and Jacob always interprets them when he gives them a name. He says, this is Bethel. This is none other than God's house. Now you come to Mahanaim, and he says, this is God's camp, which is why he names it Mahanaim. And when we get to the end of the chapter, he'll be at Peniel, and he tells you what that means, why he named it that, because I've seen God face to face. So we, we go from the house of God to the camp of God to the face of God. It's a, a really interesting progression. Like I told you, there's more to do with this than what we have time for. So God sends these angels, and that's why I tried to emphasize there's a, a really neat wordplay going on here. So not only do you have a proficient writer, you know, the, many of these people who wrote Scripture, they weren't just, <laughs> I mean, you know, I don't know how much English they had, probably none. They, I don't know how much Hebrew they had. But between their innate ability and the leadership of the Holy Spirit, there's some really neat stuff. And the more you study 
the Bible, the more you grow in respect for the Bible itself. There's a, a wordplay going on constantly through this because when he sees these angels, he recognizes immediately that this is God's camp. And the reason he calls it Mahanium is because there were two, and he knows he has two. Back in verse 10, which we read before, of several of the times when he says this, he says, For with only my staff I crossed over this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. So God sends two camps because Jacob has two camps. And what's the message? I'm here for you, and I'm perfectly capable of taking care of you, which is exactly what I promised you I would do. So God is sending him encouragement. There's another word play going on, and again, so why did Jacob immediately send messengers, as it says in verse 3, to Esau? Up above, in verse number 1, Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. Same word. Angels means messengers. So in, if the context dictates that it's the heavenly messengers, we'll use the translation, generally speaking, angels. But if not, if it's something different, which is obvious in verse 3, but isn't it interesting? God says his messengers, Jacob gets stirred up and says, i got to move forward. He sends his messengers. It just, it's really fascinating to see what's going on here. So that's what's, that's what's uh, going on here in our, our first uh, thought of encouragement. I just want to say again before we leave the point, folks, God's on our side. He's calling us to be more like himself. He's calling us to surrender. He's calling us to live in the light of who we profess to be. He hasn't forsaken us in that task, even if it involves hard things. So even assuming the worst debt today, you've got to go resolve something with some brother that you've offended, and that, <laughs> that's among, I think, some of the hardest things that we do or have to do. God will encourage you in that, and God will give you grace. In Jacob's case, he needs protection and grace, and so <laughs> he gets all of that. Okay, sorry we got to move. Um, <laughs> so still talking about consecration, let's talk about God does provide encouragement, but is there any focus? What's God trying to do? What, 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 is, the, what is the focus? Um, here's the answer. Put more in terms that we know from the New Testament. Well, it's the old self. Who's the old self? What's his name? Jacob. Who's the new self? What's his name? Israel. We aren't quite there yet, but we know the difference. And it's not without significance that God tells him that. Thy name shall no more be called Jacob. And yet there's a really interesting observation. Statistically, if you were to get out an electronic Bible or something that lets you do this quickly, it used to be, you know, when preachers or Bible students did this kind of stuff, you had to get out Strong's. If, back in the dark ages when we did this kind of stuff, I can't believe some of the stuff you had to do. I mean, we, we're just wimps now compared. Uh, you know, really, folks, 
But I, I used to always joke and tell people, you, know, you, have, you have three good concordances. You have Strong's for the strong, Young's for the young, and Cruden's for the crude. Strong's is the one that primarily I use. I need to get that thing out, microscopic print, count down through all those verses. Now you just do something electronically with a search. But if you did that, the easy way, please. You would find out something. What you would find out is, is that the name that's used for Jacob in the text from this point forward still is much more statistically Jacob than it is Israel. So, give you some idea of what we're up against, what Jacob's up against. This idea of becoming Israel from Jacob is not always so easy. And so, my point to you is, I think that I want to be careful and not be too hard on Jacob. But you see this curious oscillation, this back and forth between planning and praying, planning and praying. And if we were just going to make a kind of a hard and fast statement, wouldn't we say, you prayed about it, that should settle it, right? But not with him. He prays about it, and then he goes into a new flurry of activity. He prays about it, and he goes into another flurry of activity. And I want, so I'm trying to be kind here to be sure there's nothing wrong with the planning. Um, Proverbs 22.3 is a verse that I like. It actually occurs twice in Proverbs. I just gave you the first occurrence. The prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. So if, if you say, well, you know, I make X number of dollars a month and uh, I have these bills, and you don't plan for that, You know what's going to happen, don't you? You're going to get to the end of the month and there's not going to be any money because you've gone to Wendy's 27 times. and You have to plan. There's nothing spiritually wrong with planning. It depends, though, on what emphasis you give it and in what proportion you give it to faith. Now, don't be an imbecile and say, God will provide my needs. Not if you haven't planned and not if you're wasting your money not if you're not being a good steward of your money. But with Jacob, it's a little different situation. His prayers, and I'm trying again to notice the good that's here, because really, folks, I have no desire whatever to stand up here and be overly critical of Jacob when I already know how much struggle I have. But we do have to be faithful to, the, to the, what, what we have here and say what we think is, is really going on. This is a struggle. And so he prays because he knows that's a good thing to do. And when he prays, it's good. There's a lot of sincerity in his prayers. There's um, some instruction there. You can certainly see his humility. I used this verse uh, a couple of Wednesday times ago when I spoke on Wednesday night. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds and steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan. Now I've become two camps. That's a great statement. That's a... That's laudable humility. That is the way to approach God in humble dependence. Another way to approach God is to hold him to his own word, which he does twice. Verse 9, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said, you said this. I may have wanted to go, but you were the one who finally gave the green light. Return to your country. So he's... He's binding God by his own word. He does the same thing again down in verse 12. But you said, 
He's worried now about Esau's attack. And then it says, here's what you said, though. I will surely do you good and make you your offspring as the sand of the sea. Well, if Esau comes and kills them all, that's hard to do. Which cannot be numbered for multitude. So, all right, let's play the, play the other side of the street for a minute. Whatever, hurt, whoever, whatever happened to the song, take your burden to the Lord and leave it there. Well, how good am I at that, and how good are you? Hit and miss. Don't always do so good. Sometimes do exactly what Jacob did. Pray, and pick the worry right back up and get on the phone, or do something else. You'll go into some flurry of activity. And that's, I think, what you see here, because you not only have this back and forth between praying and planning, praying and planning, but where it really ends up in the cycle is, so first of all, he plans, beginning in verse number 7. Um, Jacob was greatly afraid. He divided the people who were with him, so that's his first plan into two camps. Now, I want you to think about the logic of this, and I'll say more about this next week. Is this a good plan? You divide your people into two camps, thinking that if he attacks one, the other will escape. Really? with 400 armed men? Just ponder that a moment. That, that, <laughs> that doesn't sound to me like a real sound plan. Figured he had to do something, so he did something. Then he prays. Then he gets going again, and you start reading verse 13 with more planning. He gets the droves, five of them. Do you know you have 550 animals here? That's not counting the, what did it say, 30 camels and their, and their milking babies? If you don't count the number 30 for that, it's 550 animals. I want you to start thinking about that for a minute. 500, go ask um, Mrs. Stevens how many 550 livestock are. If you've raised horses or done anything like that or been around animals, some of you can't keep up with one dog. You know what I mean? I'm not, I wouldn't mean as a put down, I'm just saying. Or some of you have two or three cats. 550 divided into five droves. That's a lot. Think how much wealth he had. No wonder Laban was looking at all that, you know, and took a jaundiced eye. That's amazing. That's, that's just a gift he sends. So, it ends, though, after the experience with God. It goes back to prayer. But then right away in chapter 33, you'd think that this, um, this is kind of to anticipate the lesson for next week, but you would kind of think, all right, this experience with face-to-face with God, this is going to seal the deal. It might be the milestone, but it isn't the end of the battle because the very next thing, Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, verse 31 of chapter 33, saw Esau coming and 400 men with him, so he divided I'm going to ask you now, how do you think this plan stacks up? He divided the children among Leah and Rachel and put the two female and the two female servants. He put the, so this is Bilhah and, and Zilpah, and he put the servants with their children in front. How would you feel if you were in that group? Oh, well, I can kind of see where we stack up in the mix. And then Leah, next, but that made her feel great. Rachel's in the 
last position, the most protected position, and that's the way it is. And then he himself goes ahead and bows seven times. At least he didn't go to the actual rear. He wasn't a, he wasn't a coward. But I'm just telling you, the way this whole thing goes back and forth between prayer and planning, prayer and planning, it's like he can't quite commit. He can't quite land. He can't quite get a hold of God enough to say, okay, I resolve that. I have peace. You'll take care of me. He's got to go into action again. So this struggle, it just keeps going on. And I just, I think it's a mirror image of where you and I so often are. But this is not what God wants. This is not how God works. God has got to show him. So God has other plans. You have to realize now he hasn't crossed the Jordan River yet. He's not in the promised land. And he's not going to have either the blessing of reconciliation with Esau or the blessing of the promised land until there's a showdown. He was thinking there was going to be a showdown with Esau, and it turns out it's a showdown with God. God's going to confront him with what he's like. So let's talk for what little time we have left. We have enough time to do something here with this. The goal. First of all, it's to me very instructive that God initiates this struggle. You know, sometimes I think we think it's the other way around. Read the text. It's... Jacob is alone. He does this on purpose. And I think the reason he does it is because he's desperate. You'd be desperate too. I mean, these plans he's come up with, they don't make any sense. They don't hold up. 400 men. And the thing about it, I didn't comment on the time, verse 6 back in the chapter, when the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you and there are 400 men with him. Sure would have been nice if those messengers could have come back and, and he sends his best. Everything's cool. It's like, how would you like to get that news? Yeah, he's coming all right, and he's got 400 men with him. That's ominous. He has no idea what Esau's intent is. So that, that kind of explains why he's afraid. He goes into all this flurry. But God says, no, it's not that way. You either claim my promises and live by faith, or you live like Jacob lives, and you rely on your own abilities and your shrewdness and your plans and your offerings to Esau and your presence and your dividing into droves and all these things. In and of themselves, maybe those things some have some merit. I can't see dividing the family like that having a whole lot of merit. Seems to me, and I, I wasn't there, so I mean, I, I don't want to be too bold, but it seems to me like you'd be best just to go right out there with everybody and, and ask your brother for forgiveness. Cast yourself on his mercy and on God's mercy. But Jacob's ever Jacob. You know, he's always got a plan. So God initiates this struggle. Verse number 24, God, when Jacob was alone and when he was desperate, a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Now let's be fair to Jacob. At first, I don't think he knows who this person is. It's dark. Maybe he thought it was Esau. Don't know. But it becomes clear as the struggle goes on who it is, especially when since Jacob, the, the, the individual who initiates the struggle, isn't either able to win or extricate himself. Now, how's that for God being merciful? 
And the break of day is coming, and God isn't going to be there to leave Jacob fully exposed to his presence. When the break of day is coming, Jacob won't give up. The man who is wrestling with Jacob, who turns out to be God, isn't prevailing, and he touches his hip. And immediately, folks, I can really identify with this, because I'll tell you, that morning I fell out of that tree. I mean, I walked into those woods 100% able for whatever, a 51-year-old, and I was in decent shape. I went from 100% able to zero. I couldn't walk. I mean, I walked in under my own power with my backpack, with my rifle, with everything else. No worries, no problems. I could easily handle that. When I suffered that injury, I couldn't walk, period. No half limp like Jacob. I mean, you, so the point here is you go from 100% ability to wrestle to zero. Without your ability to use your legs, you can't wrestle. And so God, God now has him totally powerless in and of himself, and, and Jacob realizes this. Here's our Hosea verse. He strove with the angel and prevailed. Was he desperate? Was he broken? Yes, he wept and sought his favor. So it's kind of interesting to notice now the blessing comes when the struggling on the part of Jacob has ended. And it ends forcefully. God says, no, puts an end to that. Kind of silly for us to try to wrestle against God, isn't it? In that sense, isn't God bigger than we are? Yet, a lot of us go around living our Christian life as if we could really fight God. You can't fight God. You can, but it, you can't win. But when he stops struggling and he starts clinging, which is what he does, how do I know he's clinging? Because he says, no, 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 I'm not, still not going to let you go until you bless me. And so, I, I just give you this closing note that it is kind of an interesting observation. God says to him in verse 28, after it says he blessed him, he says, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men. Note the order. With God and with men and have prevailed. But the point is, you don't prevail with men until you prevail with God. And these are all the lessons that God is seeking to teach him, and they're all the same ones he's trying to teach us. So look at it this way. Again, all these things we could have taken time and didn't have the time to do, but Jacob emerges from this experience. He's got a new name. He's got a new walk. A limp, to be sure. He's a marked man now. And he has a new power. That sort of reminds you of what God wants to do in sanctification and in the new life. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things are become new. And God has given us a new name and a new walk, new name, speaking of character. God has given us that new, a new life, the new man, who after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. A new walk and a new power, because we're on the same journey. So that's why the life of Jacob, to me, is... It's like getting your daily dose in the mirror. Let's just be careful we don't do what James said and go away and straightway forget what manner of 
man or woman we are. Dear Lord, bless us now and bless the service to follow. In Jesus' holy name, amen.